Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be talking to Michael Crowley today about his new short story collection, Any Other Place. The book has been widely acclaimed. NPR called it, quote, a beautiful and remarkable debut, while forward reviews said the stories, quote, are thrilling in the oldest sense of the word. They pierce, end quote. From my own perspective, I will say that, like the best writers, Michael Crowley takes us into the lives of ordinary people who have been thrust into extraordinary circumstances of everyday life. There is not a wasted word in these 13 thrilling stories of grief, exile, and devotion. Now Any Other Place is a nominee for the prestigious Weatherford Award for Fiction. Crowley is a native of Corbin in southeastern Kentucky and now lives near Columbus, Ohio with his wife and two children where he teaches at Denison University. He's the recipient of an NEA fellowship in literature. His stories and essays have appeared in VQR, The Paris Review, Lit Hub, Narrative, and many other places. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start off by you uh, telling our listeners what you want them to know about your short story collection, Any Other Place. Uh, sure. I think one of the things that became apparent over time with the stories in the book was that I was always writing about a place of some sort, but really about how place shapes us and about the ways that even when we try to escape or leave a place, we carry that place with us. And so the stories really, while not linked, I believe they're in conversation with one another about the ways in which we try to break free of how our past, which is formed by a place, I think, shapes us. And often we don't do that very successfully. Uh, One thing as I learned in my early 20s was that your problems travel with you. And I think that we sort of, we carry these places with us forever. And sometimes that can be great, and sometimes it can be really heartbreaking. I think the stories reflect that. They, They absolutely do. Uh, maybe we should back up a little bit and get just a little bit of background on you to put some of these stories in perspective. You were raised in a small town in southeastern Kentucky. Your father is Appalachian and your mother is Korean. So you didn't look like most people in your little town where there is very little diversity. And that comes into play in this book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think I think for the most part, I always felt pretty white and Appalachian growing up. I mean, that might have been because there was no one else that looked like us. And at the same time, though, that's not entirely true because I was always aware that I did look different. And I was always aware that I felt different because of that. And sometimes I carried that with pride. And then sometimes I carried that with a, a sense of shame in the sense that I was just waiting on people to pick on me. One of the things that was interesting as I got older was that out in the world I looked normal, but when I talked, I didn't sound normal, so to speak. And so I never really fit in. So I could be walking down the streets of D.C. or New York, and I'd look perfectly normal. But as soon as I said something, people would look at me odd and ask me to repeat things and, you know, find my accent not not just charming, but like something that was entertaining. You know, it wasn't, it never seemed, or shouldn't say exclusively seemed like a compliment. Um, So I think that sort of sense of, and then at home, of course, I never looked like anybody else. So you just sort of Mm -hmm. go through the world kind of feeling you're not really in in one place completely at at any time. Um, 
not to say that that was completely traumatic or anything, but but you do feel that way at times. And and I think growing up in a place like Corbin, which for listeners in Kentucky uh, know that it has a very you know awful and terrible racist past, that was a really weird thing to be one of only two or three minorities, mm-hmm. and actually the only minority family for a long time uh, in a place like that. All, even if we were accepted by a large majority of our friends and you know fellow students and churchgoers and such, but it was it was odd. Also, NPR said your book evokes a desperation familiar to anyone who's longed to escape their hometown. Would you agree that escape is a big theme in the book? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's tied up like what I was saying earlier. I think it's tied up with like escaping your past. But you know, when I was a kid. I didn't. I kind of knew it was cliche to say I was going to grow up and leave Corbin and never come back because that's what all my friends are always saying, and mm-hmm. and you kind of knew that they weren't going to do that at all. And uh, and for a long time, I thought I would never leave there. I thought that that was a place that I would go off to college and I would come back and I would raise kids there, and and I thought that was a place that would make me happy. And then you know my folks really kind of raised me to leave. I mean, Lee Smith talks about that a lot in her work that her parents raised mm-hmm. her to leave. Grundy, Virginia, you know, without realizing it in some ways, my parents were always kind of pushing us, pushing my brother and I, they were pushing us away. Uh, They wanted us to know that there was a world beyond Corbin. And and sometimes towns like that, you know, the very thing that makes them great, which is their smallness and their closeness and that community that forms, that can also be suffocating in a way. And it can be limiting in terms of you seeing what your horizon really is. And I think my parents, you know, I was lucky that one, I had one parent who'd moved 8,000 miles and so had certainly seen the world and had seen other things. But my father, though, he had grown up in Whitley County, you know, he had he had left too. And he wrote a note to me once that said, you know, I don't know what it was, but when I was 18, you know, I left home and I never really went back. And even though he only lives physically 35 miles away from where he grew up, psychically he might as well live 10,000 miles away mm-hmm. from where he grew up mm-hmm. and i think i think that was a, a big thing and so i think there's a desperate i do think there's a desperation to to get out not because the place necessary is stifling but you wonder what you don't know what your horizon is in a, in a place is sometimes and and you and you're desperate to find out what that is and so you do have to escape and that takes a lot of courage i think You're listening to On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. We're talking to Michael Crowley, the author of the new short story collection, Any Other Place, here on WUKY 91.3 FM, listener-supported radio. In the book, you write this about the recurring character, Wren, who is half Korean and half Appalachian like you, quote, He wanted to be here because he had known these people all his life but he had never truly felt part of them because he was half Korean, different from everyone else, the lone minority. While you were writing the book, did you think of Rin as an alter ego, or how did you approach him? Yeah, I certainly think I wanted to explore some things that I had experienced, and one of the reasons I do that in fiction versus nonfiction or a personal essay is because Sometimes I think in fiction you can it's not really that you can make things up or highlight a story or enlarge it in a way that you can't if you're being true to the facts of life but 
for me, I wanted to explore some things that both my brother and I had gone through, things that he had experienced that were mm-hmm. different from my experience because he's older. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, he experienced things that were much more difficult than I experienced because by the time I came around, everybody knew us. Right. And it wasn't I wasn't as odd, I guess. And um, so I really wanted to make Ren, you know, kind of me, but sort of a composite of my brother and I, but really a composite mm-hmm. of experiences. And so I was pretty cognizant of that fact. And I, and then I, I had I had some other things in mind. I had a novel I was working on and still kind of working on in mind. And I, I just sort of had this idea. I wanted to create a world, uh, and I wanted to have a recurring character in that world. And, and Ren seemed the entry point for that because he is the character I know best in, in all the things that I write. And that's because he is closest to me, but but he's not me. Uh, which is sometimes hard, I think, for non-riders right. to understand because they think you're just stealing from your life. But you're not stealing from your life. You're, you're using your experiences to get at something different uh, that approximates uh, a truth or a sensation that you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Because really that one-to-one divulging of information, you know, if I just told you about something that happened to me when I was 17, I don't actually think that that's very interesting. But if I create a character who has um, a different set of characteristics, while some of those may be similar to mine, but but has his own personality and his own wants and his own desires, I think that's easier for someone to enter into than just sort of saying, well, this is this guy's life. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easier to sort of imprint yourself onto a character than to imprint yourself on another person as a reader, I think. Yeah. Well, your characters are always in a lot of trouble. And you do a remarkable job of dropping the reader into that action already in progress. Is this something you set out to do, or is that just the way it happens, or what? Sure. I mean, I think when you're learning how to write and you take a couple writing classes, I think everyone starts out trying to write the history of their characters Mm -hmm. first because you don't know who the person is. And you have to learn that a lot of that stuff the reader doesn't care about. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way I always explain it to students is if you were to go on a date with someone – and and you said, tell me about yourself. And they started, well, I was born in 1977, and they tuck you through every year. I mean, you'd be looking for the check five minutes into dinner, right? Yes. <clears throat> you just hit the highlights. And one of the things you learn about storytelling is if you think about how you tell a story about something you did over the summer, you wouldn't tell me everything you did over the summer. You'd tell me the highlights, and then you would tell me the things I need for context. Mm-hmm. And so instead of writing a story, you just need to think about telling a story. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of the book? Can you read a few paragraphs to us? Sure. I'll read the just the beginning <clears throat> two pages of Slope, which um, it explains later in the story, but Slope is actually a, a Korean slur. Mm-hmm. And the character will remark later that he didn't find this out to graduate school, which was true of me. I did not know that Slope was a Korean slur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... That'll come into play later, but this is the beginning of slope. Ren Asher is nearing 30, and over the summer, like his father before him, he's fallen in love with a woman who lives in another country. But that's where all similarities end. For one, Hannah is an American who grew up outside Boston and now lives in Paris. And second, she lives with a boyfriend, a man for whom she moved to France. Ren knew from the beginning getting mixed up with her was a bad idea. And when they parted in August, he thought whatever he felt for her would fade. But since her return to Paris, she calls him every night at 2 in the morning because of the six-hour time difference. She waits until the boyfriend has gone for work, 
and before she goes to the high school where she teaches English, she dials her in. He likes to be wakened by her voice and sleeps with the cell phone beside the bed so that before he answers, he sees the picture he snapped of her in the metro in D.C. It wasn't strange, she asks him one night. What, he says, growing up there. Of course it is now, but not then. It was just my childhood, and it was as happy as most, I think. Happier, probably. Her boyfriend is Algerian. She hasn't told Wren much about him, and Wren hasn't asked. One night she told him, I'm drawn to people with backgrounds different from mine. Now, she says, but you have so many stories about how backward it is there. It is and it isn't, he says, feeling the need to defend his hometown against the stereotypes about Kentucky. My best friend's parents were the sons of doctors and lawyers, insurance salesmen. I don't know anybody whose father worked in a coal mine, but plenty of them worked at the railroad. It was suburban more than anything else, I guess. I just got a cool accent and a breakdown, too, he tells her. But there's more to it than that, because he knows that while Fordyce is a town and not the country, it's not by any stretch cosmopolitan or refined. Well, I think that's a a great sampling of the book there. So much of of what's going on in the whole book is tied up in that scene. The stories are set everywhere from Korea to Boston to New, New York to Ohio. But this little town in southeastern Kentucky is the true center of the book. So so it becomes a kind of story cycle built around Fordyce, Kentucky. Did, did you organize the book that way, or did that happen organically, or what? Yeah, I think early on I was working on some stuff, and I needed uh, – I know we're from the same part of the world, and I had a character who was um, – I didn't want to have the character live in Corbin, although I wanted him to live in a place like Corbin. But then I wanted to take something that was in Williamsburg and put it in town. But if I called the town Corbin, I couldn't say that this thing in Williamsburg Mm -hmm. was in Corbin, right? So I thought, well, I could just create a world. I'm a fiction writer. I could just create a world, right? Mm -hmm. And and so then, of course, I was obviously thinking a lot about Faulkner and Yachna Patafa and the way he sort of created a world and sort of had characters who kind of came in and out of that world. And over time, part of it was that uh, I've heard Jill McCorkle talk about this. You know, she says when she goes to write, she sees Lumberton, North Carolina at 10 years old. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, like when I go to write more often than not, I think of Corbin when I was a boy. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to have a place that was central and that characters could populate, and I wanted to explore sort of the dynamic um, aspects of a small town. And I and I knew because I hadn't grown up that way, and as the character talks about in that selection, like I didn't grow up – I mean, I, certainly I grew up around rural folk and, and, and middle-class folks, but there were a lot of white-collar people. My father was an executive. I had friends on the basketball team whose dads were doctors and insurance salesmen and lawyers, and we had folks whose fathers were truck drivers too. You know, I think so much of Appalachian writing, sometimes to its detriment, is always trying to explore this, like, working-class background Mm -hmm. and how hard it is. And I think, like, I get frustrated by that only because the outside world forgets that, you know, like, we have dentists and we have have people that have gone to college. Like, we're not Mm -hmm. all just barely making it, you know, and that people live there and they thrive and they've they're living there by choice not because they've been hammered into there by their lack of opportunities and so i wanted to explore a place that was that was like that but that was also very 
closely connected to rural communities too, uh, because there's also a richness of life. There's a richness of life in, in those mm-hmm. places that, that we often forget about. We only think there's only one kind of person there, right? So in these times, we think the only kind of person there is a out-of-work coal miner who still supports Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, there's just so much more to the place than that. And, yes. and in part, my own life was an example of that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was another reason to, to pick a central location and to pick a character like Ren and sort of explore some of that and break down some of those walls. We're talking to author Michael Crowley about his new book, Any Other Place, here on the porch. You're listening to WUKY 91.3 FM, listener-supported radio. I know that... Uh, you went to the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Heinemann as a very young writer, as as many writers have done. What was beneficial about that experience for you? I think just getting a sense of that other people were out there trying to do it and were, were having a hard time with it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's part of it, and I think also, I think also understanding that, um, you know, kind of testing yourself. I have kind of a I'm kind of recovering. I'm a recovering jock and meathead, but so I'm pretty competitive about things. And I think the, one of the first years I was there, there was a there was a fellow who was an oncologist from Tennessee, and he had shown up and and he had not had a very good meeting with his instructor. And so it was only Tuesday, and I think we'd started on Sunday. And and I got back to the room, and he was packing up, and he was leaving. <laughs> he, and and I think in retrospect that. The criticism wasn't as bad as he thought it was, but you know he wasn't in a place to receive that. And I'm not, I'm not picking on the guy. Like I don't think he was in a place to receive any sort of criticism. And but he also just didn't have a belief in himself. I think too. And I just sort of kind of knew from that experience that if I was going to do this, it was going to be hard. But I had to really believe in myself. And it's hard to believe in yourself. I mean, I don't say that like you know from the get go. I had tons of confidence and I, I never wavered my confidence wavers now every day but deep down I've always felt like I had something to say and that I had something I could do with this and and I trusted that I read enough and I trusted that my taste was good enough that when I looked at my own work it sometimes matched up mm. not always but sometimes and I think going to Heinemann helped me meet other people that loved writing as much as me and that valued writing as much as me and and sort of gave me a community that as someone who was an ex-jock and was kind of a you know a dumb college student doing doing dumb college things like there were people out there that cared about this and and sort of gave you permission that it was okay to care about it yeah if you're not if you're not able to take criticism this is you know you shouldn't go into writing well thanks so much for talking to us today michael it was a real pleasure yeah i appreciate it thank you We sure appreciate you all joining us here on the porch. We're going to close with a song by Tiffany Williams that matches the tone and beauty of Michael Crowley's writing. Here's Big Enough to Be a Mountain. I'm Silas House wishing you a sweet 2020. Until next time, be good to one another. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.